Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Oh my god! You know what episode it is. Oh, is it? No. Oh, it's 26. <laughs> oh, no, it's 25. Sorry, it's the 26th. Did you start at zero? <laughs> we did start at zero. Matt was, he was upset about celebrating the quarter century episode. And so after our last recording, he said, oh, we already did it. That was it. So now I've sabotaged your... What's, what little celebration you were left with has been... <laughs> and I forgot about it, too. I was going to get conf- confetti and fireworks and stuff for this episode. It was going to be awful. Uh, so sorry to our listeners. That's not going to happen. Let me... Um, okay, so we'll do that on 32. Yeah, okay. Let me introduce the show. Good morning, boys and girls. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, episode 25. Very excited to have episode 25 here today. Uh, well, some of us are, some of us are not excited for episode 25. Um, but either way, we're happy to have a very cool guest on the show today, who I'm going to introduce first because we have notes and stuff that we usually take care of before we introduce our guest. But I see a note from our guest in our extensive show notes that he wrote, by the way, uh, that he wants to talk about machine learning. And there's some machine learning stuff in the, in the notes. So here we go. Our guest today is Steve Purvis. He is joining us from Paradise. Uh, he, is, he owns a company called Euclidity, which is a, I don't want to call it a coding shop because uh, it does a variety of problem solving things, which we'll let you, we'll let Steve answer uh, that question a little bit. But um, yes, where are you, Steve? Welcome. Hi, yeah, uh, I'm in Tenerife in the Canaries. Yeah, what's the temperature over there? How many palm trees can you see at your window? <laughs> uh, lots, lots of bananas. And uh, it's, it's all right, it, it stays here sort of springtime all the time. So it's about 22 degrees today, a little bit of haze. Nice. And, yeah. and nice. It's, about, it's about to erupt, maybe, or if you, if you listen to the, if you listen to the UK press, it's about to erupt. But uh, well, we've had a whole volcano forecast. Is there a forecast that you can like the shipping news? No, I keep an eye on. Uh, I put a link in the show notes at the bottom. Uh, yeah. There's a Tenerife. There's volcano watch, mm-hmm. and they track uh, earthquakes. And everybody's excited because there was a, a line. October went crazy with a whole straight line of. Uh, micro quakes from about uh, 0.5 up to 2 and so lots of people are looking for funding <laughs> <laughs> to build a shelter so they can survive 
Uh, Arduino sensors all over the island, etc., etc. Those aren't going to help. If we, <laughs> it's, it'll help spend EU money. But yeah. If we see any smoke in the background behind you, we'll let you know so you can evacuate. Um, yeah. There's there's a picture Steve put in the show notes of the line of quake activity that he's talking about. It's it's also before you joined us, Steve, we had <laughs> realized that I think you've put in more work to these show notes than we've put in to all of our show notes and. 25 episodes. So thank you for that. If you <laughs> we have listeners who are excited to uh, read pages of awesome content, you got to you got to check out the show notes. Wait, somebody's in there right now, the anonymous tiger. Maybe that's maybe that's us. Um, that hey, good. hey, Matt, what what's uh, what? I see you've put a note in the uh, the news. There, nothing's happening. <laughs> great, great news. Uh, what? What? Where? I, the first, the first bullet in the show notes. That that wasn't me. That that must have been that must have been you, Steve. Oh, that's not, not too much happening in the in the news. That so was already we, there. Okay, so we open source these notes. So anybody? <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, right, it could have come from anywhere. We have no idea. That wasn't me. We put the uh, we put the notes, the link to the notes on Swung. Uh, that is. Let, let me just go through the pages back to that page that you're talking about. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to to put notes in there, just like someone did, you can go ahead. Um, but please, if you're going to put notes in the news section, don't say there's no news. <laughs> um, the second news note is the link to the earthquake watch in Tenerife, which is pretty cool. Um, if you want to check in uh, randomly on, on the Purvis household, see if they're still... Uh, around. If this if an earthquake has taken them out, you can check that link. Um, okay, Matt, we're on your bullets. Go. Okay, yeah, lots going on for me. Um, you know, I'm in one of those kind of crests, I guess, of the the wave of busyness. Um, I'm, I'm kind of excited, actually, because next week I'm in Calgary teaching some sort of uh, introduction to Python type material to a bunch of data scientists um, in a data science group at an oil and gas company. Wait, um, they don't already know Python? They are, uh, I think, mostly into R. Cool. Mm. So uh, we're going to go over some Python and sort of see where that leads. Um, so yeah, I'm just looking forward to meeting them and finding out what they're up to because it's the first time I'll have kind of spoken to something calling itself a data science team uh, at a petroleum company. So, so I'm really curious. Um, the other thing I, I guess I just wanted to mention, and uh, I see you were going to mention it too, is the machine learning contest, which I've talked about before, of course, but there is a slight, well, there's been a couple of developments, I suppose. And, um, I, you know, it's always tricky to know kind of how to get news on stuff like that out to people. So I've been putting it on the GitHub repo um, and mentioning it in the Swung, uh, I think in the machine learning channel on swung.rocks. Yes. Um, the, the main just thing is that there was a bit of confusion over, um, that came from us, not from uh, anybody else, but there was a bit of confusion among the so-called organizers of the contest about how we were going to score the entries. And um, we've now secured legit blind data to um, validate entries against. So that this is data that nobody else has. So um, 
give us some more, more detail because I want to know because my my entry is well, almost finished. Okay, so okay, so I'm going to be scored. So in the original article in the Leading Edge, um, we used a blind well that that we just held blind from the training data. So we actually had true faces for it, and those were part of the data set that everybody could see. And the problem um, with, so what I said was, since that was all the data we had and it was all already kind of out there with the article, I said, let's, we'll use the same blind well to validate responses. Of course, the problem is that when that's part of the training set, you can kind of, there's, a, there's an overfitting problem that's slightly different from overtraining a model. It's like a meta overfitting problem where you're all aiming at um, validating well against the same data set. Right. So um, the, we came up with two ways to kind of obviate that. One was to use a kind of uh, stepwise one well at a time dropout cross-validation, which is totally valid. And that's kind of what you do. Like Hampson Russell Emerge will do that kind of by default. Um, so that's a well-understood approach. And the other thing would be to have more blind data that nobody else had. Um, so sort of secret blind data that you submit your trained model or predictions for, and we would separately validate against this blind data. So we have now that blind data, and that is how we're going to validate the entry. So it's two wells. The You guys have the, so the public has the logs for these wells, um, Stuart and Crawford, they're called. Um, so you can actually make predictions if you want to, although I'll probably do that myself anyway against against your model. Um, oh, is it you judging it? I didn't know if it was you or Brett. Well, it's me and, me and Brett. We, we do it separately and make sure that we get something approximating the same answer. So I have to send um, two sets of money, not just one. So there'd be two suitcases, yeah. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so it's all good news, uh, as you were. <laughs> and please just... We've had two entries so far. Um, one of them just pipping the other one. Interestingly, they were very close to each other. Um, the first guy was just using the same kind of uh, support vector machine, which is a slightly different implementation of the support vector machine that Brendan used. And the second team uh, just submitted a couple of days ago are using um, an ensemble method called uh, extra trees and um, it's a very popular algorithm called XG boost uh, that, that actually we use uh, all the time for, for this kind of work and I was actually expecting it to do really well but it only just pipped the other one in fact so I will be submitting my entry probably this afternoon this evening oh cool uh, I just <clears throat> I'm getting 55% uh, accuracy there just uh, just barely beating out the rest actually my <laughs> Well, I'm going to make, here's the disclaimer, I'm going to make some statements now about machine learning and for the rest of this three-hour show. Uh, I, I don't know anything about machine learning, so I'm sure I'll get some hate mail for this. But anyway, uh, I have a gut feeling that the scores will never be extremely high on this because I think that the input space doesn't span fully the testing space, the validation hmm. space. And I've, I'm coming up with, I'm, I don't know if I'll submit this with my work, but I'm trying, that, that brings up an interesting question, is how do you visually or at least uh, perceptively represent uh, 
this you know feature vectors uh, spanning or not spanning a space. Um, I was thinking about this last night. I think I've come up with a kind of a not clever but cool way of visualizing that. So um, whether I submit it with a contest or not, I'll, I'll stick it there somewhere so you can see it. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, well, the, so I'll just say some, one quick thing about that because I think this is a general remark that I think applies to several different aspects of this contest and actually doing machine learning on geology anyway. Uh, and, and that's just that, that that is a it's a problem of it's a problem of nature essentially yeah yeah and um and any any so it's actually fascinating to me how many problems that we encounter in large data sets you already encounter in this small data set yeah you know, it's, they are general problems um we so for example we had a lot of trouble predicting salt in one of our um data sets because it's only present in uh, a few wells so we introduced the idea of basically synthetic rocks and we essentially just gate because you know what salt is so, you know it's easy to recognize for humans we just said well here's what we think salt is and it, you know immediately transformed the ability of the machine to predict salt it just didn't have enough data in its um in its training so and I, th I think things like that, like do, you can do, so there's been a few questions about how should we deal with problems? Uh, you know, can we make new features, for example? Mm. And yeah, definitely. Solve the problem any way you like. <laughs> I've been having I, fun I, with I, I neural regret, networks. <laughs> I might regret saying that. I've been having fun with neural networks. I, uh, so my, my entry is going to be in, in, written in Lua, they're using a Torch 7 uh, library. It's a... Uh, it's been fascinating to do it, and it's a little different than everybody, the way everybody else has done it yes. so far. So that'll be cool to see. Steve, is it the is it the NLP that you tweeted? What's that? The Perceptron that you tweeted is that? Yep. That's yep. Cool. It's uh, so I, I I I tweeted the the repository a while back, and it's evolved since then. But uh, I did send out a sort of like a schematic of the neural network that I was building. And it's complete, not completely, but it's very different now than it was because I just, you know, I tweaked it a little because I know what the scores are so far. I just I had to beat them by just a little bit when I submitted, so it's a slightly different. But uh, to, you'll, you'll see an update today. Um, how about you? Are you putting an entry in? I would like to. Yeah, I've got until mid-January, is it? Yes. Yep. Yes. End of January. It's about finding the time, but yeah. That's right. It's smart. Smart to submit at the end because just like me, you know what score you have to beat there. Um, what's yeah, the except, except of course, if everybody does that, then you only have a one over n chance of winning. That's right. <laughs> For the number of competitors, I, I feel like you, the the cool thing about these early ones is that well, hopefully, it will help people kind of bootstrap their way up to a better solution. Yep. Yep. I'm glad and that then, you guys and then it's hard system. work and perseverance that it comes down to, mm -hmm. which we all know is always rewarded fairly. Are you kids watching the show? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, speaking of uh, GitHub things, uh, what's the? Um, you asked me the other day, or asked a bunch of people on Twitter the other day about a color bar repository. Right. Yeah. Well, so that. <laughs> well, I guess that came up because. There was a bit of a, so someone tweeted a really awesome picture of some uh, a salt canopy, sort of salt interpretation, like multi Z. Um, in, in, I, I gather they'd done the interpretation in Petrel. 
combined it in Petrel, but then done the visualization, this sort of multi-layered thing, like in Corel Draw or something. Anyway, um, wow. <laughs> yeah, there's a fair amount of work had gone into it. But it used the rainbow color bar, right? So the guy got nice. a little bit of flack uh, nice. for using uh, rainbow. And, and, and people started tweeting, well, I think it still looks nice, or I think in this case, it, rainbow works. And I kind of took a little bit of issue with that because it's been well proven that rainbow is a horrible color bar for lots of reasons. Colorblind people can't see it properly. It doesn't reproduce properly in grayscale. It's misleading. It has fake contours in it. Blah blah blah. And and there's even studies where like you know radiologists make bad decisions when they look at data with um, rainbow compared to a perceptual linear ramp type of color bar. So I mean it. To me, that's sort of unassailable evidence. You can't then say, oh, I think it's okay in this case. It's like, no, that, that's, those problems haven't gone away. <laughs> it's just, it, maybe it's okay for you because you're not colorblind, you're not looking at black and white, and you're not making an important decision, right? But anyway, so from there, I guess Zoltan Sylvester said, hey, I made this awesome, nice uh, perceptual color bar for Petrel. And then I remember that you'd made some for Kingdom. And I know Matteo has made some in the past, I think for, for Petrel, possibly for Landmark. And I yeah. thought he had like a script that he published that did like translation from one platform to another. Awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, and, I, and my favorite thing is Cube Helix, which is not really a color bar, it's an algorithm. So it generates perceptual color bars yeah. with any colors you want. So to me, that's much more powerful than a static. Here's my. 256 RGB triples. Um, anyway, anyway, I just thought, wow, the, these things are sort of spread all over the place. We should really gather them all up some somewhere. Well, coincidentally, I started just a week or two ago. I, I built a repository with the Kingdom color bars. This morning, I just kind of updated it to allow other people to add things to it easily. I just stuck all the Kingdom stuff in one folder. Um, so that'd be a cool place. Well, even if you, even if no one adds to it, I'm gonna I'm gonna collect some and add them to that repository because I want them. Right, right, and and I've got a sort of another reason uh, for being interested in that is that um, you know I've been trying to build this bot that can extract data from a scientific image with without knowing the color bar. It turns out it's just a really really hard problem. Um, and one way to cheat is to know lots of color bars and basically just find the one that's most similar to the data that you have. Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't been able to do that because I don't have a sort of canonical list of color bars and I suppose I best haven't taken the time to build one. So I'm sort of hoping someone will do it for me. Uh, well, then my repository is not the right place to start because I built all the color bars in it. There's, there's a couple right. of standard, I, I built Veritas and Inferno from uh, Matplotlib. But other than that, it's just stupid. And there's Rainbow in there for you, too, that I built a long time ago. Um, but you're not just, yeah. Do many figures, no, not many images come with a color bar stamp, don't Nope. Um, well, actually, it's so surprising. Many do. So you can scrape, yeah, you can basically take it from the public, from the image often, and say, OK, well, that's my color bar. Um, so I'm interested in cases where you can't do that, which there are quite a few, especially if they're sort of marketing type material, um, or if it's seismic, like seismic very often doesn't have a color bar. 
And that's not a problem if it's perceptual already, like grayscale. But if they've used, you know, the one of the sort of uh, divergent style color bars, especially ones with hot ends, like cyan yeah. and yellow and stuff at the high amplitudes, then it's uh, you basically can't back the data out easily. Are, are gray scales perceptual? Like if you take a linear round, because center is always one off to the side. The center gray right. never lies in the middle. Right. And I remember once at FFA, we were we were at Southampton University. We'd plugged lots of people into a room and actually did a study. And they managed to get a gray color bar, which wasn't linear. And it actually took that into account. So the it had a sort of well, concavity to it, if you like. Mm. But mid-gray was in the middle. Oh, okay. So yeah, well, I mean, it's, yeah. it's tricky, right? Because human perception of color isn't linear. So, to be honest, I don't know enough about it to know how. I, I, but I feel like maybe there's an expectation when you look at data that it is linearly mapped, right? Because yeah. otherwise you don't know if you're looking at the data's histogram or the shape of the color bar. Um, yeah. So, I, it's a huge sort of uh, topic of research, I guess. Slippery. But yeah, if if you don't know the color bar and it's it's nonlinear, it's it's very very hard to back out the data if it's nonlinear, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I just if there's enough if there's enough images out there with the color bars on, it doesn't have to be the color bar for that image. But you could get a sampling of all the color bars that exist. Well, that's, that's, the other, that's the other thing to do is potentially just use it as a machine learning problem and just give it a whole load of things where you know, where you have the, all sorts of different color bars and you know the data as the labels and you just predict it that way. Hmm. That could work. So if you guys want to talk to Steve, you can find him at codementor.io <laughs> slash Steve J. Purvis. Um, he, we didn't, I guess I didn't really finish the introduction here, but um, he used to be at Geoteric, FFA, and no, I don't even know what SIGPRO is, but there's a note in here that says you know a lot about SIGPRO. Signal processing. Oh, signal yeah. processing. Look at you, man. I didn't write that bit. That's a cool yeah. hashtag. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, LinkedIn, Twitter links on there, stick company website link, uh, code mentor thing that I just mentioned, link on there. Creative and driven dude. And that's all I'll say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it's, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff on there, so check out the show notes. If you want to get in touch with Steve directly, you can do so, and he would be happy to give you some advice. So, Steve, what are you doing now? Right now, I'm uh, working, well, uh, food. I'm working for a company called Experimo, mm -hmm. and they're based out in Austin and Houston. Uh, Sebastian Goods, one of the founders, he was actually on the show 10 podcasts ago. Yep. So we worked with him building uh, web apps. And we just finished a, a big project for about six months worth of work, building a, a web app in React, Redux, which was, which was great, pretty complicated app, electrical engineering app. So, uh, because on the introduction front as well, the, I spent about 13 years in FFA with uh, desktop applications, Linux, Unix, Windows, incredibly slow development. 
and then that was one of the reasons why I left because I was just uh, I really wanted to get into web based software not for Facebooky things or consumer things but actually to try and do science or you know industrial scale web apps instead of just 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 yeah the other the other stuff and uh, I've been hopping around working remote for for a while and uh, it, yeah it'd be good to talk about some of that and right now I'm just working with these guys out in Austin who's a great bunch of folk learning a lot a lot of things going on quickly so I'm hopping on another project with them now cool sounds good great. Mm -hmm. uh, you've you've got the um, you've got the ultimate lifestyle for the remote hacker. We all we it's, all wish we did what you yeah, did. It seems like, but I spend a lot of time in this room. And, yeah, <laughs> I haven't got quite the outside working cracked yet because I, yeah. yeah, we almost I almost had this interview from the elevator of my office building today. <laughs> about about an hour before we were supposed to record, I got stuck in there for a little while. So the building I work in is about a hundred and twenty five years old. So. Uh, you never really know what the elevator is going to do, yeah. um, but it makes it exciting. But I think that's that's one of the things that because uh, I made a, I made the jump from full time in the office oil industry just at a time when there's like this explosion of online working and remote working for uh, software anyway, mm -hmm. and uh, so it took a bit of a pump there and. It just, uh, like over the last couple of years, it's just gone crazy in terms of, you know, the amount of remote work jobs, but as well as conversion into the gig lifestyle mm -hmm. or the sort of, you know, everything moving project-based, a lot more uh, things happening in terms of people finding gigs, uh, which I guess some people are concerned about because it's not the same as being full-time employed. Everybody's turning into a consultant or yep. a contractor, you know. Yep. But... Uh, the opportunity has been huge, and I haven't. I was worried about not having work, but I haven't, you know, haven't stopped. And so, what I was wondering is about some of the parallels between that, doing that in a software, which is you know inherently amenable to it because you've got GitHub, decent in their connection, yep. and then there's not much difference in the flow anyway. But uh, you know, what about in, in, in geoscience? Oil and gas has been for ages what a contractor-based industry. Yep. And it was Matt's blog post from a few weeks ago. Uh, working for nothing, or I can't remember the title. Working without a job. Yeah, working without a job. And it was that one that got me thinking. Well, why isn't there anything anything like that in 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 geoscience? And uh, would it work? You know, like a marketplace, a hub for people that find geoscientists, uh, engineers, you know, coders, anything, that doesn't go through this normal industry route of being hired out by Halliburton or whatever the people agency companies are. You know, could people start going independent and, and, and do that in our space? Well, it's, it is tough to do that type of stuff. Uh, I mean, without this marketplace, as you suggest, uh, it's, it's all sort of chit-chatting with folks and politicking, I guess. But you're right, it would be <clears throat> neat to have a 
monster.com of the oil biz or something, indeed.oil. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think about that? You do this all the time. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, um, I, I find it really attractive as a model for how people work. Kind of, it, it reminds me a bit of how movies work, right? Where movie companies don't have a lot of people necessarily, but they can build a multi-year project that might have thousands of people working on it, many of whom, or most of whom even, are freelancers and, and contractors. Um, I'd love to know more about how the, like, the logistics of how that works, but it's, it's a cultural thing, right? So it's not like you can't pull off big multi-million dollar um, projects with that model. It's, yeah. like it's, a proven, it's a proven model. I think it's partly just a cultural thing. There's a tendency in oil and gas, or there has been, especially when you've got a couple of big, big companies providing contract type work, like Swamberger and Halliburton in there, who of course want to own all the work. Um, there's a tendency for things to be, to not want to share, to not want to call the people in, even when you know maybe there's someone who could, who could do what you need, to want to own the work and just funnel more of the riches towards yourself or your own organization. And um, I've, I've, I, I'm curious to see if the recent downturn that's brought a big change in patterns for a lot of people, right, lifestyle and how they're making a living for the next 18 months to three years, if that kind of lasts. Because I feel like, I actually feel a bit like it's the profession taking responsibility for itself again which I know might sound a bit weird, like a bit of a stretch, but I mean, when you're responsible for, the, for your own development and the work that you choose and how you do it and your own tools, I think those are really empowering. So um, that's my hope is that as a community of professionals that we come out of this stronger and say, no, I don't want a job, right? I want you to hire me for this, whatever, the six to 18 months it takes to get this piece of work done I want to be rewarded for it according to its value and the value of my contribution, not with a salary and the threat of being let go in the next downturn. Yeah. And just trading water sometimes as well, or just being a part of the group. That's the thing about the difference between being employed versus being on your own. Yeah. Because you go in to do something and then you, you come out with that and you go on to the next thing. It's not it's not like this continuous where you're gonna be there doing something anyway, so you know, it's, 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 it's a different, it's a different mindset and it's a different cost structure for them. So I don't know about you guys, but the, the one biggest thing that I've found working on my own in various things is that uh, it's, it's more difficult for me to, to learn uh, at the same rate with which I'd be learning inside of a group, right? Because usually if you're working with a group, you, all these people are bringing different ideas to the table, they have different backgrounds, you get to chit chat and share and learn what they know. How do you guys um, overcome that? Do you, see, do you see the same thing? I just, for me, I just never stop anyway. And, and that's the thing, because you've got to fit all the learning in around it, uh, around the project or whatever you're doing at the same time. Mm -hmm. But software is a bit different. Software has reached web software, especially, has now reached the point where it's moving so quickly that it is constant learning on, on the you know on, on the job as well. 
Right. So it really even more you go. Yeah. Well, we need the IDOS as you go. Right. Yeah. But yeah. So it's become a part of the it's become part of the work. So and yeah. We we uh, the three of us have have uh, access to tools which which help mitigate this problem. One of them is the software underground. So we have this little community of people that that know various things about uh, sort of tangential knowledge to your to your skill set. Um, you know, we all screw around on Twitter, and that's lovely. But I, you don't get the sort of we're sitting in the same space, so we have to kind of think along the same lines. What about it, Matt? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I, maybe I'm just deliberately resistant. Um, <laughs> To, as a sort of uh, self-validation um, <laughs> mind trick, but you, you, I mean, you got you, you got to remember how much nonsense comes along with being inside these organisations too, right? You actually don't have a lot of time to yourself. Um, I feel like I, I learn. I, I know what you're saying. And I totally recognise it, and I think part of it comes from having a lot of um, external tasks pushed at you, which forces you to learn, right? Because it's like, oh, you need to deliver this. Uh, map or this decision or this data set or whatever you maybe hadn't thought about uh, and now you have to figure out how to do it because uh, this person over here needs it well when you're working for yourself you often don't have that so it's if you're not you know I think some people are good at challenging themselves to do things um, so having something to sort of build towards because they can keep that, you know, I don't know what quality that is, but they can drive it themselves. Um, I totally agree that it helps if there are other people to bounce things off because they'll say, oh, have you thought about connecting it to this or doing it that way or using this tool or whatever. Um, I get a lot of that from the hub here where I work in that co-working space. I get a lot of it from Software Underground um, and from talking to, you know, the couple of colleagues I have in Agile. You've got to find somewhere for those external prods if you sit in a box on your own, I agree, you're definitely gonna, you're gonna dry up, uh, unless you're remarkably kind of driven and creative. You could use a cardboard cutout, well, a cardboard cutout friend to fill in the gap. Yeah, there's an expression, there's an expression yeah. the friend of mine used to call it talking to the bear, and it doesn't matter who you're talking to, just yeah. asking somebody about your problem, you've solved it by the time you've asked the question. Yeah, totally. So, you know, how, how much more face-to-face -face interaction do you need? Would... Yeah, saying things out loud definitely makes a difference. But I do, I do, I do want to kind of resist this idea that, that we're that much more comfortable or productive inside an organization because I, I think it's a fallacy. And, um, you know, people were like, oh, well, how, you know, I don't know how you guys cope with the insecurity of having to find your work all the time, but you know, actually, it turns out that corporate jobs are like that, too. Yep. <laughs> so you're just, you're just hidden from this by this illusion of security. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I'll just keep yeah. telling myself all this stuff. Yeah. But I'm, I was amazed that somehow some of these marketplaces, how well they worked in software. And mm -hmm. somebody should start around geoscience. Mm. So are you talking specifically? Yeah. Cause I think I found you on Code Mentor, but I saw that you've mentioned another channel. Airpair. Airpair, right. What's Airpair all about? And I, I actually worked for them for a while, doing some back-end work. 
oh, for right. them. And I also did some, because uh, I was doing lots of things. So I was actually on Google Hangouts. And what I would do as part of it was uh, sit on the GMT time zone. And I would spin up Hangout on airs to connect mentors with people with the problems. They would parachute in, do their thing. I would hit record, make sure they worked. And, and that was interesting company because it started out with a, a one Google form. Hmm. And this guy who was in the States happened to be in the right place for this. But he, he, start, he started out with a Google form mm-hmm. of people looking for people with X skills and him knowing a bunch of people mm-hmm. who could put on the list. And he just started connecting them. And then it actually turned into a marketplace that uh, basically all the marketplaces gives exposure. It gives the legitimateness and you're billing through them. So it yeah. takes care of the logistics. And yeah, after that, discovery. yeah, anybody was able to, to sort of jump on. And it's anything from mentoring people through to uh, doing some uh, parachuting in to solve a problem. I mean, I was amazed at once. I had a, an hour call with a bank in Switzerland to fix a MATLAB script. <laughs> and I would have never imagined that they would wire me in at random yeah. <laughs> to fix the surgical problem. And, yeah. but, but they did. And I think the, the marketplace gave that enough trust in, in doing that that allowed that organization or that person to get permission to do it. Yeah, no, I love that. So, because it's, I remember Google started something called Helpouts, which I think was the same kind of idea, and it, it died fairly swiftly. But presumably, there's nothing to stop geoscientists from offering their services. Uh, there isn't, there, right? Uh, well, other than well, it's a bit defunct at the minute, but oh, definitely from the software on Codemint, definitely from the software point of view. I mean, they're all software focuses, the problem, so they're not going to market you very well. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's a good way to get out there and get exposed to some of this stuff anyway. It's, you know, there's lots of there's lots of people looking for Python help and, and and stuff like that. And there is some interesting applications on there. For example, I got into some audio processing stuff via CodeMeta. I also got some dentistry stuff via CodeMeta as well. Software for dentists, X-ray scanners and stuff. So it's amazing what you come into. But in terms of the geosciences, geosciences, that's it. It's just been a, I keep coming back to it, is would one of these things work? Would a, would it, would a, almost like an agency that allowed people on, the people who are like those who are sitting on software underground, for example, to be able to come in and actually access the marketplace more directly. And maybe a small, smaller companies is going to access that to start with, but. Right. Because that's that's the thing I think is because uh, you know one of the things uh, we were kicking around when we started Agile was I I felt like there was a yeah I mean basically I suppose it is the same uh, the same idea that it, it's it's you know relatively easy to go hire a consultant to come in um, and help you out but then you need a, you know a purchase order and an AFE and stuff and you're spending two months just getting them in by which time your problem may have become a big problem or gone away or, or whatever um, and uh, you know and it's tens and tens of thousands of dollars or more just for a minute so we were like is there a space for like hundreds of dollars just helping me out for this afternoon or doing whatever um, and a, a credit card economy instead of you know AFEs and so on but w- w- 
and we sort of poked at that again with with our apps right especially with modeler this is like a nine dollar a month subscription um and i feel like i still feel like um it's a, again there's a big cultural barrier there yep you know if you're inside an organization which i think is just where most geoscientists are uh if you're inside a corporation you basically don't that's not how you go buy services or buy anything actually people are really not used to that way of getting software or so uh, do, you, do you feel like that's a barrier or you think it's just something you would have to chip away at for a decade yeah is that to me or yeah 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 It's sort of I've yes. got a decade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I think about all the stuff. I was, I was thinking that you're at a point where something needs to change anyway. Mm -hmm. So the companies who move on to models like that or are open to them are going to be able to access the skills. Mm -hmm. They're out there in different ways. You know, by by allowing people to work remotely by. And remotely isn't just this person on the end of the internet. I know people who've been working for years, for example, for Statoil out of Manchester and flying over every three weeks, but the rest is at, is at home and on a VPN. Right. And so I think the model isn't. Uh, it's, the, it's the purchasing model. Mm. Well, we've, right. and, yeah. we've been talking about the remote work thing uh, or the remote participation thing for a while. And uh, again, it is an, it's a very efficient way to work because you're sort of a scalpel in a, in a room full of chainsaws. Um, but, uh, but it's, again, it's, it's kind of tough to interface, especially with a new client on projects when you, what you need is uh, just sort of a brute force, meet everyone, try to figure out where the problem exists and how to, how to cut it. So Matt and I the other day were talking about um, hackathons, so remote participation in hackathons, and um, he referenced me back to your post on Software Underground the other day about the Global Day of Code Retreat. And that looks like a fascinating experience. So it was kind of a, from what I understand, kind of a combination of remote and local participation, right? So how did, yeah. how did it go down with the local groups? Uh, it, looked, it looked great. So it was just like, yeah, it's a small hackathon in the room. The thing about the code retreat is that everybody in the world is studying the same problem. Right. But you don't need to collaborate. The point is not to try and collaborate remotely. So you had a, you had the, the small teams there doing, uh, working on their own schedules, taking their own breaks, choosing their own lunches as it were. And, uh, and then we were, we were having uh, hookups. So we had like a big uh, a peer in, have you used a peer in? It's like an after ten person video chat thing. So that was up on the wall permanent. Oh, I tried it. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah, so we could we could we could see all the other groups, and then we would just dip in every hour or so and uh, have a conversation with one of them. And the just code to, just to share. The code went away, right? They 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 forced you to, to get rid of what you had. You, worked you on. threw the we were throwing the code away every iteration. So for every forty five minutes. <laughs> So uh, explain, explain just to, just unpick that for me because I don't totally get that. So you're working out what like what was the big problem, or was there a big problem, or was uh, was that every, uh, all the time? No, every year it's the same problem. It's the game of life. Okay. 
So uh, I'm terrible with names. Can't remember the name of the, the person who invented it. Conway. The game of this life, Conway. Yeah, the game of this life is a the game of life is this four rule system. They're given a grid and these four rules. Once it's seeded, you get these recurring patterns, automata, called. And we basically that was the problem. Uh, it was to implement the game in whatever language you wanted. But then what they did is they threw in constraints. So iteration one was pretty free. Iteration two, you weren't allowed to use any objects. Iteration three, only primitive values. Uh, iteration four, no if else, no conditionals. Okay. <laughs> and so the, the, what, it, what it was, and it didn't matter how much you implemented, the idea was this idea of software craftsmanship and practice of katas was the idea that you're just trying trying to learn something new and trying to break your old habits. Yeah, love it. And uh, it, it, it was great because there's no, there's not the pressure to produce as in a hackathon. Mm -hmm. It's trying to come up with something. But at the same time, you're, you're learning and you're actually, you're actually going, you're actually getting through a lot. And it's quite yeah. refreshing to wipe the table because if you, if you end yeah, up with a little mess over here, you don't have to, that doesn't live for the lifetime of your product. It's such an important um, mindset, I think. I was just chatting to someone here in the Hub yesterday about how, um, how much freedom you have if you've built fairly modular things and you can, you can rebuild components and just plug them right in and burn the old one uh, that way. So, you know, if your app can have these components that it, that it uses and you decide you want to do that algorithm in a different way, you can just rewrite it without re-engineering the entire stack. Um, I wonder, it would be fun to try and make a list of uh, projects that would work with that kind of code golf style constraint, like uh, iterations uh, in, in geophysics. I wonder if you could do something like that with, with migration yeah. or... Um, but I was saying, one thing that's front of mind is that if there was a, if there was a particular small problem, like a very small interpretation problem or a well tied problem, tied as well to that size of the planet, uh, people, that could be the problem, and people mm -hmm. can just, instead of the constraints, people could use any tools they want to try and yeah. do that. Coding in Python to picking up existing open source stuff to uh, using commercial stuff even, if they had hands on it. Yeah, love it. And I saw, uh, I don't know if you guys saw that um, uh, David on the Software Underground today had posted, um, oh God, what's his name? I can't remember. Holmes. Uh, what? Holmes. Holmes, yeah. Holmes, right, posted uh, something from, I guess he's at the Supercomputing Conference in Utah this week, uh, along with um, Gerard Gorman. And um, like I don't think they're there together, but they're both there. <laughs> and um, I guess there's some really cool things for students going on. So Google had a stand there with sort of um, I gather a bunch of software challenges, and you kind of got you had like a passport and got points for each challenge that you that you met, and gradually got kind of more rewards for the number of points that you just sort of or achievements you'd unlocked. Thought well, that was really really awesome. Um, really like things like Project Euler, where there's this sort of stepwise 
going through solving problems um, and just the code craft that that builds. And then the other one he, he posted this morning, uh, which is, was especially kind of um, apropos because we've been talking about doing it for so long <laughs> or for at least a year uh, at SEG, which is um, taking a paper and reproducing it uh, sort of live and, you know, as a sort of public demo of reproducible science, basically. Um, so they've been doing that at, at uh, I think it's called SC16 or something, the supercomputing conference. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think there's all, all these um, all these little kind of tools for CodeCraft are out there. We just, it would be fun to adopt some of them. But Graham, you were thinking we should do one of these uh, these sort of distributed hackathon type things in the, in the winter. Are we ready to talk about that? Yeah. Oh, okay. So my idea, which I think is amazing, is that for the <laughs> hackathon. Oh wait. Oh no. Well, yeah. No wait. I'm thinking about the wrong thing. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm, oh okay. I'm gonna address that idea in a second. So yes, we were thinking about. We would like to do some sort of remote participation for the EAGE in Paris hackathon in June, and as practice, we'd like to do midwinter a remote participation hackathon. Uh, doesn't necessarily have to deal with geoscience, but uh, a lot of the I think well, some of the people interested are on on uh, software underground, so maybe maybe it will. Um, what do you do? You guys have any ideas yet? Do you have a list? You're into lists. <laughs> Seems like you have a list for a lot of things. Do you have a list for um, winter remote hackathon ideas? Um, well. Uh I'd, I'd love to give this uh, this paper reproduction thing a try. Okay. Yes. Like if, if if there were remote groups attacking it, then each person, each group could have a paper, maybe. Yeah, I like it. Um, I think in that case, uh, the thing that for this particular hackathon, this sort of the idea of local get-togethers, like the Global Day of Code retreat, uh, I think that would work really well. Now this is somewhat disconnected. It's, it's a little different than than what we have in mind for the Paris Hackathon, but um, it would work out. It would be very cool if we could get you know teams of three or five in in different cities around the world to hack on something in January, maybe February, probably February. Yeah, sure. Steve, you in? In February, yeah. Okay, good. We'll see you there. Time is crazy. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess the answer to the, the question is, uh, we don't know what we're going to do. But uh, potentially, if you're interested, we're going to have a hackathon in February. It's going to be awesome. Are we ready to talk about the other thing yet or not? I, I'm not sure I know what that is. Oh, I was talking the robots, the remote participation robots. Uh, OK, yeah. Go on then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look at him. Um, but you can't see him. You can't see him. But he's giving me his, his, his weird face here. Um, the robots. I thought it'd be awesome to have at the Paris Hackathon uh, remote participants. But rather than just coming in on a Google Hangout or something like that, we actually have tablets or laptops or something. And hello, my name is XXX stickers. And we and everyone that wants to participate remotely gets a tablet and a sticker. So we'll 
the, before the hackathon starts, we'll set all these tablets up and stick stickers. Hello, my name is Graham. Hello, my name is John. And every team will get at least one robot human participating. So, yeah. Do they have Do they have wheels on them? Though? Yeah. We don't need wheels on a tablet, Steve. It's not really. A, it's not really a robot unless you can move it around to show yourself. Okay. Does it need to be yeah. remote controlled if it has wheels? Mm -hmm. Yes. But we could start with the tablets, but that's what I had in mind when you said robots. Okay, we'll get to the wheels later. We've got to try out the robot thing first. So the teams have to carry their robot around with them while they're doing their work and while they're not doing their work to spur this sort of creativity we've been talking about this episode. Uh, for example, I'm going to go eat lunch. You have to take your robot to eat lunch. Yeah? And so that's where you're going to chat anyway. you got to take coffee break. you got to take your robot to the coffee break. You know? Even robots have to pee. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but anyway, I think it's going to be awesome. And I'm going to set up all these robots, and I'm going to make the robot thing happen because I think it is going to be hilarious to have remote faces on screens being carried around everywhere. Especially if you get renowned scientists on them. So each one of these is actually an oracle. <laughs> yeah. You could ask the oracle. <laughs> Yes, I like it. Hey, let's talk about machine learning some more. Steve, did you put that note in the show notes? You've got to say something about machine learning. Yeah. Yeah, what do you want to say? Uh, it's, uh, it's, big it's, uh, it's the big, biggest frustration I have right now because it's so, it's so interesting and uh, so little time to do it and difficult to get paid to do it, even though maths seems to be... Uh, <laughs> Successful that well, <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I keep I keep dreaming of because I've been working with seismic for so long, yep. and I suppose a lot of the stuff I've done is in frequency decomposition and and lots of stuff uh, around faults and the more structural seismic attributes or or trying to measure structure from the seismic. This is with or without machine learning. With or without machine learning, and I'm just I just that's where all my reading around is, and it's just how. How do you start addressing parts of these problems? And uh, I just put the notes in there because of the, some of the stuff that I had read and sort of this whole generative art and uh, adversarial learning, mm -hmm. which is, I think, some, probably some of the stuff that needs the most work and is the hardest to get the work. Seems like it's the only solution for, for seismic. Because even though we'll have lots and lots of data, nobody will ever get all, all the data. And nobody will ever get the label end of things. So it seems like the, the approach we're using for wells, for example, that will work for wells and well fascies. But if you really start to want to use it on seismic data sets, you need to transition into this whole other, this whole other world. And uh, well, I just wanted to talk about that. And does anybody know of anybody actually trying to do that? Or yeah, lots of people are doing it. Um, you don't necessarily, I mean, obviously, you don't necessarily need labels to do machine learning projects, depending on what kind of training on, and learning you want to do. Um, on size, on size, so for example, is anybody trying to reliably extract fault interpretations from size? I think that the... Gener generate geological cross-sections. So my, yeah. my experience which is limited in the automated sort of fault and horizon picking structural interpretation uh, world is based on deterministic solutions using 
geometry attributes as seeds, but you could absolutely use multiple inputs from you know, coherency and geometric goals, uh, curvature attributes and things like this as seeds for uh, a machine learning algorithm. Clustering is the thing that strikes me initially. What do you think, Matt? How can, how can you get your machine to pick a fault automatically? Learn. Well, I, I, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm thinking that the stuff that Dave Hale's been doing is basically machine learning, um, trying to essentially generate labels from, from the, directly from the seismic. Um, yeah, I, it's such a, I, I guess people aren't saying much, right? Um, as is so always the case in this bit. Yeah, there are a few talks, um, like I'm thinking of that one by the guy at the Catholic University or something or other in Brazil doing work with Repsol. Um, I, you know, I mean, they were focusing on, uh, they weren't focusing on structure, if I remember rightly, it was salt. But um, I have a hard time believing that people aren't working on that particular problem just because it's always been one of the main things that feels like you should be able to get from seismic. Um, but that's, but I mean, I haven't seen anyone talking about it in those sort of terms. I certainly haven't seen anyone or heard anyone talking about deep learning in that connection. Um, so I, mean, I, I have a project potentially coming up that deals with seismic wells, machine learning combination. Um, and I'm not exactly sure how it's all going to go down, but one of the avenues that I'm going to be exploring in this project is using labeled facies data from well data and extrapolating that into volumetric seismic-ish data set. Now, the link there obviously is going to be some sort of inverted attribute volume. Um, but I would tell you more if I knew what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> but but that's so so yes, I, I think the answer is there are some people doing some work on it. And uh, if you want to start with labels, if you want to do supervised learning on seismic data sets, you need either some way of automatically labeling data based on statistical characteristics, like driven by a human, right? Or some sort of spreading algorithm which can extrapolate human seeded picks. Right. But, Is that that's the connection you've been looking at predictive painting in? Uh, that's not why I started, but that is where I'm heading. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm quite interested in what emerges about attributes and about inversion as people get more into predicting geology from seismic with things like deep learning and wondering, you know, do you need attributes actually? Do you need to invert the seismic? Um, you know, because in, in image analysis, we often thought, oh, well, I need to do segmentation to for object object recognition and things like that. But neural networks just implicitly do that, right? You know, so it, it, it's it's. I think it's going to be really interesting to see sort of what what additional information, if any, do you actually need, or can can I mean, the neural net just infer what it needs to know? Can the attributes become the 
especially with structural stuff, can the tributes become the, the training data or the labels? Right. So that's, because, that's what I was suggesting. Yeah. However, because they, however Matt, Matt makes a good point. I mean, the, the wave field characterizes all these things. Do we need to do the math, the deterministic math on the data set to have the human readable attributes affect the learned machine learned solution? I think the answer is no, right? So think about like a um, think about a, uh, a sort of a reservoir inversion, like a microscopic reservoir inversion. Um, so we select some layer. You use these little tiny waveform inflections and curvature attributes on a single envelope, trace you know one one wavelet width, um, only because human beings can't see that on on a seismic data, even if you're looking at just this one little thing, it's too, too small or uh, nondescript for a human being to be able to pick that out. Um, but it exists mathematically, it's there, it is data, it's just sort of micro data. And that would be an excellent place for an unsupervised class, uh, clustering algorithm to start to pick out, say for example, uh, oil water contacts or uh, you know, gas oil context or something like that. Even, well, maybe not gas because that's so apparent, but you know what I'm saying? I'm not sure. No. Neither am I. <laughs> I'm not sure how you do that with without supervision. Um, but, but, I mean, the, there's crazy things happening right now with, like, deep belief networks that are completely label-free uh, and, you know, it, it's essentially the the machine just figures out its own uh, objective which is i mean it's it's remarkable what especially neural nets are, are able to do things that seem impossible like the upgrading of um uh the resolution of photographs i don't know if you've seen yes. that steve I mean, basically Super resolution. Yeah. yeah i mean it's it seems impossible but, uh, and with things like RNNs, which I've been playing a lot with, these recurrent neural networks, um, they can basically work like a Fourier transform because they have this memory over some period uh, and they establish patterns uh, in at all scales. So they're multi-scale uh, within some limit usually. And um, that's, you know, so they can figure out, they can do signal analysis. They, they I mean, you mean SIGPRO? <laughs> yeah, and machine translation of language, right, is another example where there's no explicit model of language. It's just that the network learns, I mean, that's the whole point, right? The network learns the model, it's implicit. And you can do fascinating things with them after that. So with a, um, a network that you've trained on, say, HTML, um, you can then go find the neurons that trigger for different tags. And they understand what should be in that tag and how that tag ends. Or at least they're connected to neurons that know that. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I can't wait to see what neurons that we've been trained on seismic think they know about seismic data and the responses to things, right? It might be really surprising. I mean, we might actually learn something about physics and nature uh, from them. Yeah. There seems to be lots of challenges. I mean, the fact that the RNNs, for example, take a take a particular route, don't they? With 
where I've seen those applied to images, for example, the uh, uh, handwritten character recognition or recognizing numbers. Yep. Uh, yeah. And that's, that starts to come into sort of active vision, where the network's actually fixating. So you have some part of the system which is responsible for figuring out where to look next. Right. Right. And that starts to bring that you into into a space that is more human. It is more like the interpreter. Because a lot of a lot of what you do to recognize a form in a seismic data set is to do with the motion of your eye. It's to do with the the whole picture and the fact that you follow this false contour or this illusory contour between the, the reflectors is, is a big part of knowing right, right. Or, or being able to see the fault. And that's the problem with the because I've worked with a lot of different fault attributes and Dave Hale's algorithms as well are great at pulling out uh, the, uh, some major fault structures or all the parts of them, but they miss a lot of faults. They, 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 they can't know what to do with life purifications, junctions, crossovers, they get confused. Right. And when you turn the probability threshold down, just all the stuff comes out of you. So, you know, they're the gaps that the interpreter needs to fill. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. are those the gaps that, that you can teach an RNN to fill, to actually take in uh, the output from Dave Hill stuff, which is some of the best we've seen, and but understand how to get use the highest probability structures within that. Yeah, but I, in a way, I'm less interested in the convergence, if you like, of that of those probabilities. I'm actually more interested in the probability cloud itself, like I'm interested in the distribution. And so, yeah, like Alex Graves, who's, who's done a lot of the recent work on RNNs with these um, long short-term memory or LSTM RNNs, uh, his thesis is on handwriting um, recognition and generation. So his um, trained net can generate very convincing yeah. handwriting. But what's really cool is there's some visualizations that he does um, a along with the, the product, this, this generated handwriting, that shows the uncertainty about where to go next. And, you know, as you'd imagine, the most uncertainty is when the pen essentially, or the, <laughs> the imaginary pen lifts off the imaginary paper, there's a lot of uncertainty about where it will hit the paper again. That's one of the kind of degrees of freedom, if you like, that you have in handwriting. Um, well, if you think about that as a fault, um, those are the points that are really interesting, right? Like, yeah. I want to know what that cloud looks like. And to me, that's the biggest benefit of machine learning. It's not converging on an answer, on a deterministic result, because, yeah, I can get humans to do that, and humans are comfortable doing that. I want to know what all the other possible results are, because humans can't do that. Right? I mean, if, if, we, if, if all we end up doing is, is doing what humans already do, but faster, I don't think that's... That's, I don't think we've won. I, I, if it doesn't lead to a better understanding and handling of uncertainty in the subsurface, which we just traditionally as an industry suck at, then I think it's a missed opportunity. That's a good point. End of rant. Fascinating rant. I'm excited by the prospect of learning physics from machine learned answers, right? It's, it's, it really is. <laughs> The other thing that I, that I find frustration in the minute is the size of machine learning has gone, or the size of the word has gone mm. boom, over the last the last few years. And 
because it is putting in all sorts of stuff about data science and uh, for example uh, PCA dimensionality reduction signal processing clustering those were those weren't regarded as machine learning workflows sort of 10 years ago but now they're in the space because it's all it's all sort of fused together mm -hmm. so it's difficult to find where the real contribution from the machine learning part is I find when people yeah, yeah. are talking about it you know and I suppose it's People are, are trying to solve the problem anyway, but when it comes to the machine learning part, I think that's when you've gone more non-linear, when you've gone to try and get some mechanism in RNN or a manifold learning algorithm or something like that to go and learn the structure inherent in your images. Yeah. Uh, that's when you're on the when you're on the right track because you're trying to get the fundament, the fundamental of what the machine can see. So on Software Underground, Lucas mentions that um, mm -hmm. one of the problems that humans have in uh, evaluating different in, uh, interpretations is that it's not inherently obvious to a human every time to make uh, a quantitative interpretation of the uncertainty in their interpretation. Right? So that, that is a, a, a huge benefit of applying a learning algorithm to something like PCA, as Steve mentions, uh, because you can you can analyze multiple realizations of solution, right? And absolutely. and the certainties there with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be really fascinating watching it unfold. I agree. It is. It's a. You know, there's a lot of stuff that there's a, there's a translation problem or a sort of jargon problem uh, where a lot of these approaches have been taken for a long time. We've had neural networks for years and years, and people have been dabbling with them. There's never been, I don't think, an accessible implementation of uh, neural nets, at least not in geoscience. So I look forward to, to that kind of revolution, if you like, the accessibility of machine learning. Um, but yeah, a lot of these things are dead old. So Brendan Hall told me yesterday, he'd, someone had described machine learning to him as statistics on a MacBook, <laughs> or statistics done by people in San Francisco. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, and it's a very daunting field to, to try and start reading about, right? Partly because everything you think you've read is sort of obsolete very quickly. Yeah. Um, and it almost just like just an unbelievable amount of research and innovation and writing, like very rapid writing. It's totally departed from the kind of old model of, um, you know, peer-reviewed publishing in slow motion in journals and things. I mean, it's all on the web. Um, it's, it's all being done like right now. You can go and find out what's happening like right now at the University of Toronto, you know, which is a sort of, the, the mothership of deep learning, and um, it's really exciting. So I mean, one, I'm just excited to be doing. Or, I mean, I'm just you know on the back end of the learning curve, but I mean it's an exciting time to be doing computational geophysics for sure. Oh, you know, I've, I've <laughs> I'm excited to be 20 years behind <laughs> the, the cutting edge. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it, I mean, this. Uh, I mean, I've I fell off the deep end, man. I stuck like. I just started reading textbooks and things. I didn't. I, I don't know. I can't quit. I, it's just awesome. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's uh, it's the intersection of 
you know, optimization theory and statistics and I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, um, I've read now several textbooks in like a week and I feel like I feel like I know more than I know. So here's here's one last one. Last, we, we, how long have we been on the air? Um, we've everybody that was listening is now asleep. Um, yeah. So one one last question, which is from Steve. How do you and it, it's not to me because I don't know the answer. How do you how do you get people to pay you for machine learning, Matt? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good one. I mean, um, I th you know, th there's definitely a task to f to um, it's sort of educate, I think. Um, and I mean, fair enough. There's probably a bit of a buzzword happening right now, and probably for the foreseeable, where it is safe to drop um, some jargon around, <laughs> and it will do you good because people want to be part of something cool. Um, I mean, the thing that's going to, to me, the, the, the biggest risk, I think, to our kind, if you like, is that um, people will go off and do, quote unquote, machine learning, and it won't work very well. And what we're discovering is that the data side of things is a bit of a nightmare. Like, just getting data that you can learn on is super, super hard. Um, and... Uh, people are going to get burned. And so there's going to be a kind of race between crappy stories and awesome stories. And if we can keep the awesome stories winning and by awesome stories, I mean like legitimate applications of machine learning that actually demonstrably work and do better than what we would normally do. Uh, it's part of the underlying reason for this machine learning contest, right? Is to actually try and, surface some of these workflows and these stories um as long as we can keep ahead of that i think it's i don't think it's going to be hard to realize value like whether you're a contractor or building software or um or even getting contractors like i think this is gonna there's gonna be real wins um but not if the first thing that happens is that you know you assemble some ragtag data science team out of a couple of um, your IT pool and uh, and a manager, and they do data science on your geophysics or whatever, and it's awful. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think it's going to take a reasonable level of effort by a, a broad range of people, including some very smart people who aren't normally to be found in these organisations, like mathematicians and hardcore coders um if you know so there's going to need to be hiring before those experiments can be done either of contractors or of employees so i, I just yeah because that's the danger with, with these buzzword periods right is that people go out and do it and then come back that's what happened last yeah. time if you like in the 90s with neural nets yep so but this time i think it's for real this time there's there's the hardware to back it up the data volume to back it up. The tool sets uh, already built. The tool yes. sets, the number of people working on a problem. I mean, all of these things are converging in a way that we haven't seen before in this realm. So, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm positive that there's going to be fantastic outcomes. I just hope they're sort of this decade, not next decade, right? So one more, okay, I said there was one last question, but one more question for me, which is, uh, 
when does it when does applying learning solutions become a problem to domain knowledge like you have to know something currently about wave propagation to process seismic data but if an if you throw enough statistics at any problem you can you can get to a correctish solution even if you don't know what you're doing right mm -hmm. is that is that a problem I mean, what, you know, do physicists now start learning only about statistics and, and learning algorithms rather than uh, thermodynamics and, and quantum mechanics? I guess that's the same time that Skynet takes over. I, 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 I yeah. I mean, I feel, I feel like it, on its own, it isn't a problem. If it comes with... If if it if it comes with a complete kind of abdication of uh, interest and uh, research and due diligence and attention, then yeah, it's a problem. But implicitly, I, I don't think it's a problem because I think it just shifts the requirements for professionals and domain experts um, to other bits of the workflow or other aspects of the problem. And and like I say, my hope is that it shifts it from. Um, if if they're not as involved in the problem solving, but they're still involved in like, okay, now I can solve all sorts of new problems. Which problems am I going to solve? And when I solve them, what have I learned about nature or um, the the world and the future? Right. I mean it, that. And to me, those are much more interesting problems. Like the, a, a lot of the way that, that we solve problems today are somewhat um, mundane and repetitive. Um, you know, just thinking about how we uh, say make sense of log data well from wells. You know, it's quite labor intensive. It needs a, a, a goal like a decent petrophysicist, and they're thin on the ground, and it's a bit of a bottleneck. And and not doing it properly has all sorts of horrible consequences. Well, I'd love to be able to stop doing it that way. Um, and if the neural net does an awesome job, and I don't know how, I don't know if I'm too worried. Um, if it does an awesome job and I, and, I, and I don't know how, and I stop paying any attention whatsoever to well log data, then that's a problem. That's my concern, hmm. that sort of the, the deterministic models get lost and we move towards a brute force solution to everything, kind of lose sight of how nature works uh, moving forward from our current understanding. I mean, that's a that's a benefit of supervised stuff. Though. Supervised stuff's hard to do, but it bakes your ground truth in. Yeah. Whereas the unsupervised is where there's more danger that somebody just puts together something and generates a load of geobodies and there you go. Right. But you've no idea how they actually relate to anything real. Yeah. Well, I don't know that we've come up with any answers, but I do know that it's time for a coffee break. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, we should do this again sometime. We should. We only covered about a third of the show notes, so we have uh, two more episodes to go. Steve, thank yeah. you for the awesome show notes. I'm going to go read them now, I promise. And everyone listening <laughs> should also read them and click on one of the hundred links with amazing content here that Steve has put into this thing and also various anonymous tiger and anonymous wolf have, have also contributed today. Steve Purvis, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Steve. Great. Good to see you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.